If you wanted to see a play in London in the 1860s, there were a few options. You could see Hamlet, Richard III, and Antony and Cleopatra, or you could see a thin slice of Hamlet from 1863, the rise and fall of Richard III, or a new front to an old shirt, and Antony and Cleopatra, or his story and her story in a modern Nile story. The Victorian era saw an explosion of Shakespeare burlesques, irreverent, pun-ridden parodies that spoofed sanctimonious productions of the National Bard. The conventional image of the Victorian Shakespeare, if you open any standard survey, is heavy-handed idol worship. The Victorians performed Shakespeare in elaborate, reverential productions with clunky historical sets that often drowned out the words themselves. The mute reverence appeared to be the normative Victorian attitude toward the national poet, yet against the party line, a more raucous party had begun to rumble. As the worshipful stance that George Bernard Shaw would call bardolatry gained Victorian converts, and as the end of the patent theater's monopoly on certain plays allowed more theaters to stage official Shakespeare, popular burlesques of the Bard's most revered plays blossomed in response. Victorian burlesques targeted the officiousness and pomposity of the mainstream versions themselves. The great tragedies elicited the most pious attitudes and thus were most often parodied, Hamlet chief among them. The Hamlet travesty from 1849 Hamlet, exclamation point, the raven prince of Denmark, exclamation point, exclamation point. Hamlet, or not such a fool as he looks, and Hamlet revamped, a travesty without a pun, which sounds highly unlikely, given the burlesque inability to let, say, the Duke of Gloucester go off stage without a snappy joke about cutting a double Gloucester cheese. In 19th century theatrical parlance, travesty and burlesque were relatively interchangeable terms. Both terms indicated a ridiculous parody, often by rendering high drama in the low style. So you get, for example, Andrew Halliday's play called Romeo and Juliet Travesty, a burlesque. The burlesques feature famous soliloquies set to popular songs, lots of topical references, blank verse recast as rhyming couplets, and frequent digs at the famous actors playing Shakespeare in the standard way next door. Naturally, the mainstream actors didn't like being spoofed. This is not a one-time phenomenon. It happens again and again in the burlesques. The same mechanism recurs in, for example, Hamlet revamped a travesty without a pun when Hamlet begins to be or not to be. Horatio barges in on Hamlet, finds out that he's dejected and soliloquizing, and then assures him, you can't soliloquize alone, before leading a men's chorus in To Be or Not To Be, sung to the tune of Three Blind Mice. The idea was not so much to laugh at Shakespeare as to laugh at the piety that would stop you from laughing at Shakespeare. Words from the study Shakespeare Burlesque and the Performing Self by Daniel Pollock Pelsner. Pelsner takes things one step further. 
He reminds us that the dramatic moments when Hamlet's character is most revealed comes in his celebrated soliloquies, as we know, particularly to be or not to be, speeches that seem to show his mind at work. If you look back at Hamlet's image before the 19th century, however, you don't get the same focus on private reflection. Hamlet seems to have been known by earlier audiences not for moody introspection, but for manic action. So burlesque offers a movement away from private inner consciousness toward a more outward, collaborative performance. Hamlet's friends are not only rescuing him from wallowing in introspection, they're also rescuing the tradition from overvaluing Hamlet's inwardness. Instead of reinforcing the tradition of interiority, the burlesque treatment of Hamlet's soliloquies generates social speech, inviting the audience to participate and disagree. Victorian Shakespeare burlesques turn the internal debate of the isolated self into the public dispute of populist entertainment. Silly, but significant too. And doesn't an outward turn sound like a good direction to take as we all emerge from isolation and inward focus of COVID quarantining? That's something of what they're up to at the Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts in Hazleton the next three weekends. They might give us tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day, but not without a bit of this. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Mashup, might we say. The musical is Something's Rotten, and it opens this Friday with Dane Bauer as Nick Bottom and Carl Kleist as Nigel Bottom in something of a newfangled Shakespearean burlesque. We had a chance to speak with these two Elizabethan playwrights about the production and the choice to open the season with this romp. Dane Bauer. I do know in discussions with Sam that the idea was, number one, to try to do something that hadn't been done before in the area and to do a show that was very big, that required a lot of dance, that was really a sizable production. Yeah, it really is the perfect one to come back to. There's literally a number called A Musical. It's very much about it. As anyone would say, the title says it all. Something's rotten, and we've experienced that for sure. Well, tell us the premise of this particular piece. The general premise of it is it's about two brothers, Nick and Nigel Bottom, who are writers, playwrights, in London at the same time as William Shakespeare is alive and in his prime. So their theater company can never quite catch a break because Shakespeare is, you know, the the be-all, end-all in London at the time. And it's about the older brother's sort of frustration with the situation and desperation to, to create a hit in this world and the younger brother's admiration of Shakespeare and and how it sort of puts the two of them at odds a little bit. And Shakespeare is an actual character in the show, and that's always fun. People playing real historical figures, but kind of alternate views on them, different takes. What does Nigel see in Shakespeare to admire? What is the best part about Shakespeare as a playwright? Oh, my character, Nigel, yeah, he he admires Shakespeare so much, but he, he can't really tell his brother about it because he despises him. Shakespeare, obviously, at the time, no one else could compare even. Does Nigel sneak out and go see Shakespeare's plays? 
Yes, he definitely does. Kind of looks at Shakespeare almost in like a mentorship kind of a role at times. You know, letting him read his work and provide feedback and things like that. And then Bottom, of course, would tell us something about the way the real playwrights have done the work of including references to other pieces by Shakespeare, yes? Yes, there are references throughout the show. Of course, my character's named Nick Bottom. He's a character in Midsummer Night's Dream. There's a character named Portia, which is a Shakespearean reference. His quotes are throughout the whole show, but I do want to stress that the show is not written in iambic pentameter. It's not Shakespearean dialect. It's modern dialect. But there are, re- there are references throughout, yeah. Yeah, you don't need to know Shakespeare at all to fully enjoy the show. Now, what are you two as brothers cooking up? So my, my character is... He's kind of got his back against the wall a little bit. He's in some debt. You know, he's having some financial struggles, and he's really desperate to get a hit. So he basically takes up every penny he's earned, and he hires a soothsayer to see into the future and tell him what Shakespeare's biggest play is going to be, and then he tries to steal the idea. But the soothsayer gets it a little bit wrong, and we end up with a a pretty off interpretation of Hamlet. A mishmash of weird predictions from different musicals and such. And the soothsayer is a send-up of Nostradamus. Do we understand that? Yes. Yep, it's Nostradamus's nephew. And, and uh, he's being played by Jimmy Williams, who is another veteran of the stage and of your, your show as well. And are you playing it in period costume? Yep, Ayanna Groover did the costumes. Uh, she's done an incredible job. And we were able to get some costumes from... She, she made a ton of them. She's been putting in an insane amount of hours making the costumes, but we were also lucky to get a couple of them from the Metropolitan Opera House and some other locations. So they're very, they're very legit period costumes. They look amazing. And so tell us how you've been finding your inner Nigel and your inner Nick. I think I have the... I'm fortunate in that Nick is very similar to Dane. We're not all that different as characters. You know, he's, he's harsh-tongued and, and he's got a fast wit. It, there's just a lot of parallels that well, when I saw the show on Broadway, I thought, oh, man, I have to play this role someday. It's just very much in my wheelhouse. I'm very comfortable with the character, and it's just been a tremendously fun opportunity, and I'm so glad that I was able to do it. Uh, and Nigel is just the, like, shy, awkward younger brother, which is also very appropriate to me, not really talking as much during this interview, and I love it. <laughs> it's sheer comedy. Does it go to farce? Yeah, it definitely goes. So when Nostradamus sees into the future, he mixes up a bunch of Shakespearean references with more modern musicals, Annie, The Music Man. Really, it's it's kind of a strange celebration of about the last 70 years of musical theater. Yeah, and that's why I think it's very appropriate to open up after this time of no live theater. Yeah, the show very much plays as sort of a love letter to musical theater and to Shakespeare in, in its own weird way. And the the, uh, the tableau of the piece is very much comical, farcical. There's some favorites of Shakespeare. There's two characters, actually, that, that dress as members of the opposite sex throughout and, and cause some level of confusion, which was a huge trope in Shakespeare's catalog. So there's a lot of farce and, and silliness, and it, it's just a ridiculous show. Are you each dancers in your theatrical career? In my theatrical career, I, I've done everything I can to try to avoid dancing as much as possible. It's unavoidable in this show. I have to do a little bit of dancing. Not too much, but a bit. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely, everybody has to dance in the show. Speaking of which, 
I have to say that our ensemble is out of this world. The dancing is amazing. They, they're gonna they're gonna blow people's socks off with what they're doing on stage. They're yeah. incredible. They take it to the next level. They really do. How about the music sitting on your vocal cords? Is it giving when it comes to that? It's not Stephen Sondheim. It's certainly not Sondheim, although there are Sondheim references throughout, as there are with, you know, basically every other staple of musical theater, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, all that. But the music itself is, it's very fresh. It's sort of modern, while also paying a lot of homage to classical theater. As far as vocal range and things, this this role has been a dream for me. It's, it's a role that's just challenging enough. I don't have to worry about blowing my voice out or anything, but I can I can hit everything with the force and the power that I need to. So it's been really rewarding to sing through this score. It's it's a great score. Really catchy songs. I know Carl and I our, our favorite number <laughs> collectively in the show is a song called We See the Light, which is sung by the the Puritans. There's a bunch of Puritans in the show, and it just turns into this great upbeat sort of. Uh, 70s jive type of a song. It's, it's a lot of fun. Tell us about that song that you mentioned, Carl. I think it's called A Musical, is it? Yeah, uh, the song it's, is called It's a called musical. A Musical. And it, it's basically this Nostradamus predicting musicals before they've ever come out. Like, Nick Dane's character is the first person to hear about musicals, and he's told it through this big musical number where... The ensemble does this insane dance, and and there's a ton of musical references in there, too. It's so clever and and fun. It's hilarious. Yeah, if you love musical theater, just that that song alone, that six or seven minutes, however long it is, it will be worth the price of admission because you get references to, like I said, Music Man, uh, Chorus Line, Annie, Rent. There's references to the Phantom of the Opera. There's just every show kind of gets lampooned a little bit. You're going to miss a couple, I I guarantee (laughs) We know often there's not a lot of high-tech scenery in Shakespeare. Is that the same for you all? The scenery in this is fairly involved. Mike Bobzinek is the scenic designer, and a couple of us have been working pretty diligently for the past couple of weeks to pull it off. Of course, it's Renaissance-era London, so everything has a, a Tudor kind of look to it. So the thatched roofs and the, you know, the, wood, the intricate woodworking of Tudor homes and things like that are throughout. But it's also the play is sort of anachronistic, so there are references to rock concerts and things like that. So we've got stages coming on and off stage. A lot of it is just played to an open scene, like would have been done in the Globe, you know, back in Shakespeare's time. But there are some there are some moments where it very much has the feel of a modern musical with sort of big pieces and and, you know exciting scenery. And what about your relationship as brothers? Are you buddies ultimately? Oh yeah, The, the characters are written. Uh, I have two brothers in real life, and it does a nice job of capturing the brother relationship. There's a lot of love there. There's a lot of mutual affection. But there's also, again, those moments where we kind of get at each other a little bit. We bug each other. But ultimately, it's very much about two brothers who love each other and and are, are doing everything they can to try to create something together. You know, the overall theme of the show is kind of be true to yourself, follow your heart, believe in yourself. It's, it's just a, it's an inspiring kind of a message wrapped up in this silly, fun show that I just think people need to get out and, and laugh for a couple of hours. And I can promise you, you will laugh often in this show. It's, it's really funny. The script is funny. The songs are funny. Everything about it. Even the way some of the choreography that, that Sam has done, she found a way to work humor into that. It's just top to bottom. You're going to have a great time and you're going to laugh the whole night. And it's very heartwarming, too. Yeah, there's, you know, there's just enough, a little, bit, a little bit of conflict to kind of tug at your heartstrings. And then, of course, everything wraps up with, a, with an appropriate musical theater ending. 
We met Dane Bauer, who plays Nick Bottom and Carl Kleist, Nigel Bottom, brothers, playwrights, in Something's Rotten that will play at the Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts, 212 West Broad Street in Hazleton, for three weekends, opening this Friday, July 30th, and running through Sunday, August 15th. There are evening performances at 7, Fridays and Saturdays, and Sunday matinees at 3. So opening night, Friday, July 30th at 7 o'clock, Saturday performance the 31st at 7, and Sunday, August 1st at 3, and that's the pattern for the complete three weekends. It's 212 West Broad Street, the Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts, for more information on the web. And you can find them, Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts.